1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Expensive Speech Edition. It's Wednesday, January 14th, 2015. On today's show, Selma is the new film about a crossroads in both the civil rights struggle and the life of Martin Luther King Jr. We discuss its status as a work of cinema, as Oscar bait, and as a historical document, all with Jamel Bouy of Slate. And then the massacre of much of the staff of the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo has been greeted with the slogan, Je suis Charlie, and waves of demonstrations in favor of the basic prerogative of an open society, the right to speak freely, if unpopularly, and without the threat of violence. We discuss the cultural responses to this grotesque attack on free speech. And finally, in the age of Google, what is a dictionary for? We will talk about the fate of Merriam-Webster with Slate's resident word nerd, Stefan Fatsis. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, Steve. I should warn you guys. I have a hoarse voice today. I have barely any voice at all. So this is, we've got Dana
0: Bacall here in the studio. I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so she's sounding very, uh, very. I feel like you're about to play in a jewel heist or something. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like very, very saucy. You don't look like you're about not not to spoil anything. You look very lovely for a clearly quite sick woman.
2: <laughs> Most jewel thieves oh smell less like Vic's VapoRub than I do right now.
1: Oh my! Maybe the back of Julia's hand will help cure your pain. <laughs> right. I
0: like the idea of you like slinking into a vault, like trying not to spill your chamomile tea. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just... Get this pendant. (laughs) I'm sure I'll feel better.
1: This is the Hollywood pitch to end all Hollywood pitches here.
0: I would 100% watch this movie. All
1: right. Well, plunging into actual culture. (gasps) Selma is the new film from director Ava DuVernay. It stars David Oyelowo as Martin Luther King Jr., and it covers a very specific few months in the civil rights leader's life. From his acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize in December 1964 to his march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, in demand of the right to vote the following March, early spring. The movie also stars Tom Wilkinson as President Lyndon Baines Johnson and Tim Roth as George Wallace, the Alabama racist Alabama governor. We're joined by Jamel Bowie, a staff writer for Slate, to talk about the film. Jamel, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. We'll get to you in one second. I wanted to start with Dana. Um, It takes nothing away, I think, from this movie to say that it's Oscar bait, because in addition to that, it's many, many other things. Uh, Tell us what you thought of the movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, in making this movie, Ava DuVernay really had her work cut out for her. You know, this is the first fictional feature film on Martin Luther King or the civil rights movement in the 50, 60, 50 years since uh, since these events took place. And so the temptation must have been great to make this, you know, a David Lean-style sweeping vision of King's entire career and life. And she, as you say, does just the opposite and really drills down into this one specific strategic moment of the movement, and I think that's what really saves this movie and makes it it makes it as compelling as it is, even for someone who knows this story already. I thought it was really beautifully accomplished, with a few reservations that we can get to later. But yeah, I, I loved Selma. It was on my ten best list for the year.
1: Uh, Julia, what did you make of this film?
0: I found myself really moved by it and impressed with it as a piece of historical storytelling and as a piece of direction. I mean, this is a director who, you know, as she said in multiple interviews about the film has not really attempted anything of this historical scope or kind of technical scope in the past. And it feels really confident and assured. And I'm curious to hear, Dana, your false notes, because there were a few that I heard, but it just, it feels very sure of itself, like she's in control of her pitches. And I thought, It's incredible that a movie like this hasn't been made in the last 50 years, and yet the timing of this movie's arrival, given the larger national conversation this year around Black Lives Matter and police brutality and a whole host of other issues, voting rights. I mean, the very law that we see enacted here is one that's come under threat from the Supreme Court in the last couple of years. It just feels pertinent and well-told and not heavy-handed, despite the possible temptations and risks there, I think.
2: Another thing worth noting, I think, is that she was not able to get the rights to any of Martin Luther King's actual words or speeches. Those are you know, privately – the Martin Luther King family can decide who to license them to. And I, I think Steven Spielberg has actually the rights to a lot of his speeches for a possible project that he may make someday. So Ava DuVernay also had her work cut out for her in that she had to essentially sort of write – oratory that sounded King-like but was not actually the familiar words of King, which I think ends up being something in the movie's favor because we don't hit any of those points You know that we've seen so many times in so many documentaries that they may have become sort of these marbleized monuments in our mind. You know, the, the letter mm-hmm. from Birmingham jail or the, uh, the speech on the march to Washington.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, Jamel, turning to you, first, I'd like to know what you thought of it as a film. But then let's get into some of the issues that you've written about for Slate about the film regarding its historical accuracy. First, would you think of it as a movie?
3: You know, As a movie, I'm, I'm on the same page as Julia. I, um, I was really impressed by the direction. I was really impressed by how DuVernay tackled the crowd scenes, the uh, attack on the bridge, Bloody Sunday, before then the um, attack against the marchers at night. I thought those were all very kinetic, um, very exciting, like she deverne really had really could show you both the chaos of what was happening and zero in on particular people and uh, particular moments. And watching I saw the movie twice, and the second time watching it, my thought was, I would love to see her direct a Godzilla movie.") Um, <laughs> I think I think she could actually be a really great director for that kind of, like, disaster film, especially since so many modern disaster films actually do a really terrible job of um, conveying the chaos of a crowd.
0: Right. Or, or connecting the human experience of chaos. They right. basically are good at putting chaos on screen, but then it's so chaotic that you're like, I'm just watching things flash and flare, and I don't remember why I'm here or why I care. And the stakes in this, I mean, she's aided by... The natural stakes of this movie, which are just so profound. But I think you're so right that you the way she shoots the individuals who are involved, their choices, where to be in the march and whether to march and the tension of the moments right before it goes up into violence. It's really moving.
2: Yeah, I said in my review that she shoots the protest scenes the moments of of chaos and violence erupting in the protest scenes the way a war scene would be shot. You know, there's some moments where you have that feeling of being on the ground while violence is unfolding around you and you don't know what is going to happen next. That's particularly true in the way she shows the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was this young protester who was killed by police in the kind of Aftermath of, of one of these demonstrations, and uh, and what's crazy is that he and his family were actually pursued into a cafe, and he was killed in this restaurant. And she shows this moment, and it's just a moment that you really sort of see the police as these terrorists. You know, I mean, just not unlike the, the Charlie Hebdo massacres, just people who could burst into any private establishment and murder at will. It's quite terrifying.
0: Well, and the opening of the movie, which in another director's hands could have felt like too much, you know, she opens with the Birmingham church bombing, and we see these children descending the staircase of a church going past stained glass windows chatting about their friends and their hair and their lives and you suddenly realize why you're there just before the explosion happens and you you realize you're hearing a speech with Martin Luther King talking about lives lost and then you're seeing these girls descending this church staircase and then you then you know what's about to happen and the explosion happens and it's it's such a shocking violent way to enter the film. And it does raise the stakes. It does make you think, right, this was terrorism. The language that we use for this sort of attack now is terrorism. And that's what this was. And it helps connect the story of 50 odd years ago to the stories in the news today in a way that, that draws a connection that I thought was powerful. Mm hmm. All right. So before we go on, let's listen to a clip from the film. This is after the Bloody Sunday violence at the initial march, attempted march from Selma to Montgomery, where King speaks to the press and exhorts people to join them and clergymen to join them in this march and to kind of expand the range of people who are involved in this protest and this civil action.
2: Dr. King, Warner, doctor. Can you get a statement, please?
3: Morning. Warner. While rageful violence continues toward the unarmed people of Selma, while they are assaulted with tear gas and batons like an enemy in a war, no citizen of this country can call themselves blameless, for we all bear a responsibility for our fellow men. I am appealing to men and women of God and goodwill everywhere, white, black, and otherwise. If you believe all are created equal come to Selma join us join our march against injustice and inhumanity we need you to stand with us
0: it is funny hearing that clip not watching the movie i'm realizing Ava duverne gave a really great interview with terry gross where she talked about a yellow's performance and how they were really careful not to get into explicit mimicry of, of the way king spoke in particular and to kind of develop a, a speech with its own rhythm and cadences that carried the same authority and he does a great job but hearing it without the visual I'm realizing that his accent sounds actually a little bit like um, Francis Underwood from House of Cards like the, the exact intonation is, is strangely similar He's about now. to
2: turn toward the camera with an evil <laughs> lifted eyebrow
0: I, So that's like I should take that back for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet because the movie's so great and that's a, such a silly observation but <laughs> it, it um it is I mean he really does the performance really carries the movie I think because he manages to convey just this the the weight of the responsibility is taken on in a manner that feels really lived in.
2: Yeah, I think what really struck me about Ayala's performance is just how little actorly vanity there is in it. I mean, you're playing just such a lionized figure, and there's such an opportunity to kind of, um, I don't know, kind of just sprinkle fairy dust on your own head, and there's really none of that in his performance at all. He plays him as, you know... A, And we can get to the ways in which the the script does this, but he plays him as a a flawed individual. But yet he preserves that kind of authority and nobility that we associate with King.
1: All right. Well, Jamel, um, some people have taken issue with the film's historical accuracy. I mean, specifically the depiction of uh, Lyndon Johnson, who in the film is seen as kind of an adversary of King's. He, in the most controversial scene, it appears that he gives Jagger Hoover, the FBI director, the green light to dig into King's uh, personal life, uh, specifically his infidelity, which is not historically accurate. You've written about this. So what was your take on this?
3: Yeah, I mean, my take is that I, I don't think LBJ's depiction is as historically inaccurate as charged. From my viewing of the movie, he wasn't an opponent or, in, the, or uh, in opposition, as much as he, in, I think he has this line in the movie that he has multiple priorities. He has the war on poverty, he wants to pursue, and so while voting rights is something he wants to accomplish, it's not an immediate agenda item. It's a bit further down the list, depending on how you look at the facts. That is either fair or unfair. The unfair take is that in I think December nineteen sixty four. Johnson had directed an aide to begin drafting a voting rights bill, and then that voting rights bill became the basis for the one that made its way through the Senate. But it should be said that 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 decision to ask someone to draft something wasn't... Johnson didn't have any intention of pushing it for a vote anytime soon. It was just sort of something to have in the pocket. So the film doesn't portray Johnson as opposed to voting rights, just sort of I have other priorities, and so it's the job of King to make voting rights a priority, um, I think critics have, you know, much firmer ground um, when they point to the Hoover scene, which does really carry the implication that Johnson um, directed Hoover to uh, uh, release the tapes. Um, Johnson certainly knew about what Hoover was collecting, but the the idea that he was responsible for for sending it out there is it's just not the case. Um, historical inaccuracy is just something that comes with, I think filmmaking about historical events. I think the the bigger question is how much is how much of Selma is true, um, capital T true to what we know happened? And I I think it's very true to what happened.
2: And those scenes between Tom Wilkinson as, as Linda Baines Johnson and, and Yellow as King, I think, are some of the dramatic high points of the movie. I mean, just the, some of the negotiations between them about, you know, in what order to take on these priorities that they, they both share. I, when you look at where the criticisms of the portrayal of LBJ are coming from, Jamel, it looks like a lot of them are coming from people who work for the LBJ library and, you know, people who have a lot of interest in defending that that vision and that memory of him.
3: Right. And I, I think, it you know, it doesn't... Help that Johnson has had sort of an uh hasn't had the greatest reputation. That Vietnam so, so so has defined his reputation as president that his his genuine commitment to civil rights um has fallen by the wayside. <clears throat> and you know, if anything, I kind of think this movie does it does a decent job of bringing that to the forefront that showing Johnson was very much concerned about these things. I mean, the um his his scene with uh Tim Roth as. Uh, George Wallace, which as an aside, I really loved Tim Roth as George Wallace. I it was totally great. Watch a whole movie of Tim Roth as George Wallace. <laughs> um, but that scene where uh, Johnson uh, essentially says, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, and I don't want to be on the wrong side of history with you, um, I think is sort of a nice punctuation mark to Johnson's uh, actual com- actual substantive commitment to getting civil rights right.
0: Jamel, you you had a great piece about what uh, the Black Lives Matter activists might learn from this film what were your thoughts on that
3: yeah um you know i think it goes back to the depiction of lbj i mean one of the things the movie does really well and and showing the back and forth and showing the strategizing is that at every step king is giving lbj he's giving the you know jim clark he's giving everyone all of his opponents or all of all of the reluctant members of his coalition a way to say yes to sort of safe face and i think that's something that in my read of the, the the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement, um, I'm not really seeing much of a, a way f- a, w- a way to not just appeal to the consciences of um, sympathetic whites, but also to give both opponents, um, and, and in this case, opponents to you know, police departments and sort of reluctant allies or or reluctant members of the coalition, a way to say yes in a substantive way to get something that would re- re- relieve the pressure. A Good example of sort of like the the problems with not giving uh, your the other side of the way to say yes is uh I think was it last week or two weeks ago, um, time all runs together for me. there was tr- there was something where people were interrupting brunches by reading off the names of young black people killed by police. and I, I kind of get why you would do that, but it strikes me as something that alienates more than it does like do anything. And even if it doesn't alienate, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to respond that, respond to that if you're someone on the fence. Like if I were in that situation, I wouldn't know how to respond. And I think insofar that the movement needs like a change in strategy or tactics, and I'm not sure that it does. But if it does, it's more it needs to move more towards sort of the strategic use of uh, of spectacle and less uh, away from spectacle for the sake of spectacle.
0: Well, and one thing that's really interesting about this film that I left it thinking about is that, at least as portrayed in the film, King and his crew were strategizing and relying on just the abject viciousness of some of their opponents. And in a world where racism takes much more abstract, systemic, I mean, not always, obviously, as we've seen this year, but has a tendency to be a little bit more deeply buried it's harder to use that same strategy. Um, But maybe we should circle back around to the movie itself because we're getting somewhat far afield. I feel like this should win all the Oscars. But, Dana, you mentioned your reservations. What are your reservations?
2: I mean, I I would love to see this movie get a bunch of Oscars. I can't imagine um, anybody's performance surpassing David Oyelowo's as much as we loved also Timothy Spall and Mr. Turner that we talked about. But, I mean, I'm kind of an Oscar agnostic. I think they're both incredible performances and and worthy of recognition. I mean, my aesthetic reservations about this film are are minor. I think there are small moments where it does slip into a biopic-like familiarity, something that we have seen in a lot in many... Such historical, uh, dramatic reenactments. Um, there's some schematism like that, but so much less than there there could be in a in a movie that has this, this much history
0: to cover. Yeah. Also, I just may, it made me want to watch like. Three more little mini chapters i like i would like her to make three more movies about king with this cast highlighting different moments in his life right
2: because it's not just about king there's so many characters in it i mean jamel was wishing for a whole movie with tim roth as as governor wallace i would love a whole movie about diane nash who's a tiny character in this movie but a really fascinating character in the movement maybe she'll get her movie next
1: Hmm. all right well jamel thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the movie i hope we have have you back on soon Oh, not a problem. Happy to, happy to chat. All right. Well, the movie is Selma. It's directed by Ava DuVernay. And uh, let us know what you think of it. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have?
0: Our sponsor this week, Steve, is your baby smooth cheeks. We are sponsored once again by Harry's.com, which is the razors by mail service that we've talked about before on the show. And... Um, it's a new year, it's January, it's our second podcast of 2015 and it is the time in in your life when you look at the broad expanse of 2015 ahead of you and you start thinking, I could live my life better. I could I could change everything. I could be doing everything so much more smartly and and wonderfully and and one thing you can do is stop spending time and money on expensive plastic blades. You could just have your razor show up in the mail and then use its kind and lovely emollients and and make your cheeks as lovely as Steve's. Steve, how nice are your cheeks?
1: My cheeks right now are stubbly, sebaceous mess. But as a treat, (laughs) I'm going to drag elegantly over the stubbly sebacity, the beautiful (laughs) Harry razors. And I'm going to emerge a cherub.
2: Harry's is backing out as a sponsor so fast right now.
1: (laughs) I like Steve
0: the Cherub. Are you going to purse your lips and blow a little rain cloud around the firmament? Uh, I'm sprouting tiny little wings even as we speak now, Julia. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, Harry's has a special deal for our listeners. Their starter kit is just $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code CULTURE. And after using the code CULTURE, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. So, again, that's harrys.com now and $5 off with the code
1: CULTURE. We thank
0: them so much for supporting our show.
1: All right. Thanks, Julia. Moving on. Last week in Paris, after forcing their way into the offices of the French satirical weekly Charlie Hebdo, two gunmen massacred 12 people, including the publication's editor, Stéphanie Chabonnier and seven other Charlie Hebdo employees, as well as two police officers, and wounding 11 others. It was horrifying, of course. The gunmen were apparently trained by a Yemeni branch of al-Qaeda and were seeking revenge for the magazine's satirical depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. Immediately after the attack, the slogan, Je suis Charlie, went viral, and there have been huge marches in show of solidarity for both the victims and for the right of free speech within the context of an open society and without the threat of violence. In many ways, uh, Julia, this is a very simple story, a horrible, horrible thing happened. It's inexcusable on every level. And uh, people's support for the Je suis Charlie hashtag and slogan is quite moving. Nonetheless, a number of incredibly complicated issues arise with a situation like this, that it's the privilege of a free society to talk through openly and often in conflict. The first one of which is, would Slate publish these images?
0: Slate did publish these images the day of the attack. We published a few of the most controversial covers of Charlie Hebdo and had a post translating them and sort of explaining what the jokes had been and what the responses had been, including a couple of the images that showed the Prophet Muhammad, which some had objected to. Um, But, you know, a lot of people did not publish them. A lot of mainstream American publications, newspapers, television networks did not publish them. And most of the folks who did publish them tended to be digital entities. We published them. The Huffington Post published them. The Daily Beast published them. The Washington Post's op-ed pages, but not its news pages, published them. I mean, to my mind, in order to understand this story, you need to understand what this publication was and where it fit into the French publishing landscape, which is, it's always a little bit odd to insert yourself into the alternate reality of the media landscape of another country, because the kind of cultural distinctions and sorts of publications that exist can closely mirror your own, but then also just be skewed through the lens of the different culture. And to understand what this magazine was, what role it played, and what these cartoons were that had caused so much controversy, I thought people needed to see them. But, you know, obviously, it's a decision that's easier to make when you run an opinion journal based in New York and DC and not an international reporting staff of hundreds all over the globe. But I was still surprised by the variety of responses from the American press i'm curious what you guys thought i mean we you know it's something that to me seemed like a piece of news context but did you find yourself wanting to see the images looking for them trying to find them where did you come in some ways this this domestic american media debate about the cartoons is the least important well i don't know it it seems like it could be one of the less important things about this attack but on the other hand if it's an attack on a free society maybe it is important where did you guys come down
2: I mean, I know I can say I, for one, am glad that those images were out there, not only out there, but in many different places, including Slate, you know, well-explained and well-translated and sort of placed in the context of a very long tradition of anti-clerical kind of ribald humor in France, um, and some of those images are really, really gross and and xenophobic, and and it's not something that you sort of want to proudly put your hand over your heart and say, "Just we Charlie." About, I think there was a certain amount of hypocrisy to the number of people that you know stood up in defense of free speech in the wave of the attacks without taking into account in any way sort of the context of these images and what they might mean, which is not obviously in any way you know a defense of the attack but of the maybe sensi- sensibility of the many many nonviolent muslims in france and all over the world who still might find these images upsetting.
0: Steve where did, where do did you come down on all of this? Did you were you digging around trying to understand the publication?
1: No, and I, and for the same reason that I don't think it was important to consider either the, you know, architectural value of the Twin Towers or the you know social value of the activities that were going on within them in order to assess the extent of the crime of 9-11 and what the appropriate reaction to the destruction of the World Trade Center would be. I just don't think it matters. I mean, the one thing we've learned since these attacks is that French people have mixed feelings to put it mildly about this publication and that they had those feelings prior to the attack and prior to the previous attack on them and threats to them some people felt that the publication was more than just anti-clerical it was you know anti-semitic in some instances i have no way to evaluate these claims whatsoever and the truth is they don't matter it wouldn't matter if they were the kkk it wouldn't matter really what they were. I mean, Europe has a very different notion of, or at least a somewhat importantly different notion of free speech and hate speech, and they do circumscribe certain kinds of uh, different European countries, circumscribe hate speech differently. But nonetheless, you know, the, the principle is essentially the same, right? Which is that regardless of how offensive it was, the right to say it was more or less absolute, and that right was abridged by, uh, you know, bottomless act of thuggery. All of the interesting issues to me have nothing to do with the depiction of uh, Muhammad, nothing specific to do with these specific depictions of uh, the Pope or Muhammad or whomever, and everything to do with the complicated reaction to terroristic acts on the part of a pluralistic society. So, for example... To the degree that we're celebrating the ability to have profound intellectual differences with one another, how do we feel about highly unified expressions of solidarity in the wake of uh, an attack like this? Uh, I think a part of us should sway emotionally along with them, absolutely, and a part of us should stay reserved and acknowledge also that in our recent history the, such displays of unity have been very quickly appropriated to political forces that are actually anti-pluralistic. And so to my mind it, it opens a pandora's box that should be open on a more or less permanent basis. I mean it's it's the in some ways quite horribly taxing demand of a pluralistic society to live with ambiguity about social ends and social means and I, I worry when and especially graphic, I mean, in relation to our discussion about Martin Luther King, this is, this is very apposite because it was how graphic those images were and the fact that they were televised that really galvanized public opinion in favor of the civil rights movement. And so, that, so of course, there are instances where something uh, horrific happening in a mass media context actually does awaken a moral conscience and the more unanimous the better. I just think that the lesson of nine can't go unlearned here. And I immediately put Je suis Charlie on my uh, Facebook page, but it only took me about 48 hours to regret it uh, because I'm not sure that I am that. And I'm not sure that proclaiming you're not isn't in some ways the best way to maintain a diversely opinionated uh, society.
0: Well, right. and But in addition to Je suis Charlie, there was Je ne suis pas Charlie. Again, I, my friend just coming out because I don't have any on the show. But, you know, there was there was the initial step of solidarity. And then there was the comfort of saying, you know, I can abhor this absolutely as an act of gross violence and also say that I didn't like Charlie Hebdo and I thought they were racist or I thought their cartoons were reprehensible or I thought they were dumb or, you know, it's just not my thing. And, you, you know, the freedom to, to say that and make that distinction I thought was interesting. You know, what do you guys make of folks who've talked about, I mean, speaking of Boko Haram, the Boko Haram massacre that occurred the same week where I think details are still coming out, but it seems like more than 2,000 people were killed in a horrific act of terrorism and violence. And the media-driven West is extremely focused on the deaths of a handful of white men in France and not so much on the thousands of black people in Nigeria. You know, have you, do you think those critiques have been useful, valuable, misguided? What, what have you made of that response?
1: I don't see where that equivalence needs to be brought in at all, because the attacks in France are specifically, they're both, you know, the brutal deaths of these specific individuals, but it's also an attack on a principle shared by the West. And that poses on an ongoing basis, a set of complicated questions about what counts as speech, what counts as protected speech, how absolutist is our commitment to speech. In the case of france, do we place this in the context of colonialism and the the really checkered history of uh Muslim immigration in France? These are all live and ongoing issues, whereas there's a a human rights um, there, the, which is not to minimize the horrible terroristic act committed by boko Haram but it's it's not clear what moral challenges is posed by an atrocity in that part of the world directly to us. I mean, it, there's a foreign policy challenge. There's a human rights challenge. Those things are not small. But it, it does seem to me that there's a, a direct challenge to the identity and self-image of us as Western societies that needs to be dealt with. I mean, it, it has to be thought through. What I refuse to do is feel the guilt trip of the person you know, who's accused of not caring about lives in far-flung parts of the world. Because I can do you know I can do nothing as a citizen of the United States and of something some abstraction called the West really to have very much effect on that, but on an ongoing basis, what I can do as a citizen of this country is ask myself to what extent I want to hold my leaders responsible in what proportion I want to hold them responsible for something called free speech and multiculturalism versus the safety of myself and my family, and then secondly. You know, kind of to examine my own feelings in the wake of horrific events like the attack on Charlie Hebdo, with some memory of how a solidarity that I felt very much a part of after nine eleven was abused in favor of uh, drumming up support for a completely, it seems in retrospect, unnecessary and ill motivated war. It, it, anyway, it seems to me these are of direct relevance to our own volition as citizens whereas the other is really just an expression of a kind of generalized horror at how awful the world can be
0: well i don't know if american citizens have no ability to influence foreign policy further abroad than paris but so if you're if you're you know a domestic american citizen and you're thinking about how you want to pressure your government to balance these things multiculturalism free speech your safety where does that leave you in terms of the you know robust to suis Charlie response or the decision to print or not print cartoons or any of the rest of it.
1: Mm, I, I, I'm i agnostic on the image issue. I mean, again, I don't think we needed to hand ring about, you know, whether or not uh, global free enterprise is an intrinsically valuable thing when the Twin Towers are leveled by a couple of airplanes. You know, I I thought they were ugly buildings. And I thought a lot of the activity that went on in them was not you know admirable, but it was irrelevant. it was so on the one hand the, the the specific content of the images are by and large unimportant to me. I also feel like i 'm never going to be able to penetrate the semiotic veil of Frenchness that makes them either offensive or meaningful or acceptable or unacceptable, or unacceptable to actual French people. But let me give you another example. One of the very first responses to the attacks was written by George Packer on the New Yorker blog, and he starts a piece on a terrorist attack on the concept of free speech by circumscribing what other people ought to say about the attack. I mean, implying right off the bat that any kind of sociological context, you know, any invocation of of French colonialism, it should be basically disallowed on its face. And it seems to me this is where solidarity goes very quickly. It it goes from something I think quite earnest and admirable into something manipulable and, uh, in fact, anti-pluralist if we're not careful
2: Right, Steve. I mean, the idea of prescribing, for example, any investigation or discussion of, of France's really terrible policy toward its Muslim immigrant population over the last decades, for example, banning girls from wearing the veil in school, et cetera, that's, that seems like it's all part of this conversation just as much as those images are. I just I mean, I can see how for a nonviolent Muslim in France, how all this would feel right now. And it would suck. You know, if you're like a poor person living in the banlieue or whatever, you know, you lost your job because you're wearing a veil like the Hayat Boumedine girl did. I can completely see how all of these, you know, white Europeans and international community kind of putting their hand over their heart and declaring their allegiance to this magazine that insults your religion could sort of feel like. You know, there's there's no way out. I mean, it's sort of like it is after like after the 9-11 attacks where talking about the kind of discontent that gives rise to this kind of violence for, for at least a little while was off the table.
0: Right. On the other hand, I did have a visceral response. I don't know if you guys saw the Joe Sacco cartoon, which pointed out that, of course, cartoonists should be able to draw whatever they want. But it's hard to understand this attack without thinking about all of the various Ills that have happened after nine eleven, including torture, and he draws, you know, an image basically of some of the Abu Ghraib photographs that emerged. And I found that response, like, like I found that response to be totally off base somehow. I mean, not that he didn't have the right to say it. Of course, he had the right to say it. I'm not trying to police anybody's speech here. But torture is not an acceptable response to anything. Stipulated colonialism is not an acceptable global behavior. It's stipulated, but also like. Just like gunning down a room full of people is like it it, it. it does seem like there needs to be able to be a conversation about larger global forces prompted by this. But it also feels it feels to me problematic to treat an attack like this as in any way a rational act, mm-hmm. you know, and it is tricky. I mean, like we're so used to filing gunmen under like crazy young men here in the States because the attacks tend to be more personally motivated and not funded or financed or trained by global terrorist bodies. But the shift from, I'm going to fly a plane into a building to, I'm just going to go into a room with a gun and terrify people or run around a city with a gun and terrify people. That's something that we have experience with here in States and tend to file as crazy. And where you align an attack like this with a whole political movement or ideology or, or mode of terrorism like, of course, to understand how it happened, you have to understand that. But something about that Joseco cartoon, I don't know. It, it treats the men who committed this horrific act and shot up that office and murdered those people. And it's like rational political actors in a way that, that I find disturbing. Mm.
1: Well, I uh, modestly suggest that we take our befuddlement as a sign of uh, mental health, all evidence to the contrary, because uh, there is no simple or unified response to this and there sh- it shouldn't be implied that there is or should be right that that in some way a society's tolerance for a wide diversity of opinions is reflected in individuals as well and their ability to hold several contrary things in their minds at once all right well anyway uh we've come to no conclusion maybe you can help us uh come to even less of one come to facebook.com slash and tell us uh, what you think about the je suis charlie uh movement all right moving on
0: Steve, before we move on and and talk to Stefan Fatsis about the dictionary, I have an announcement for our listeners, which is that the writers and editors behind Outward, site's LGBTQ blog, will be convening for an evening of queer conversation about the latest gay news, culture, and controversy, and it's happening Tuesday, February 3rd at City Winery in New York. City Winery being an awesome venue where we've done at least one show. But it's a great room, a really fun space. Slate's Brian Lauder, Mark Stern, and June Thomas will share the stage with actress and singer Leah Delaria, uh, who plays Big Boo on Orange is the New Black and has written for Slate a few times. And uh, at the end of the evening, audience members will have an opportunity to pose their very own Ask a Homo questions. This is the video series that June and Brian have been doing for us for the last year. So again, that's Tuesday, February 3rd at City Winery in New York. For more information, go to slate.com outwardnyc.
1: All right, moving on. Stefan Fatsis is the author of Word Freak and a panelist on the excellent Slate sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. As the subhead for his latest article for Slate says, Merriam-Webster is revising its most authoritative tome for the digital age, but in an era of twerking and trolling, what should a dictionary look like? And do we even need one? Stefan, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Great to be with you. Stephen, your piece begins with a quite remarkable portrait of the Merriam-Webster headquarters. It's a kind of time capsule. It's superannuated, charming, and possibly totally obsolete. It's been more than 200 years since Noah Webster first published a dictionary. This is the last fully staffed American dictionary maker standing, as you say, in the piece. But do we still need this at all? What We all grew up with the single volume compendium of words. Where did you come out on this?
4: Well, I came out that I think we do need it. And we might not need it in the same way that we needed it um, when we were growing up, the conventional Wisdom of what a dictionary is or the conventional idea of what a dictionary is this book that you keep on a desk that you open up Periodically when you're confused about something Um, You know a dictionary is different now a dictionary is in our pockets a dictionary is everywhere and the contents of a dictionary are everywhere you type in a bunch of words or a letter string into a search engine And you can gather more information on your own than a dictionary could provide you in any form um, or fashion. Having said that, the value of the dictionary, I think, stays with us, which is the ability to curate and analyze and explain language. That is the province of lexicographers. These are people that are trained to do that. And there is tremendous value. And Merriam-Webster and other dictionary makers that are still you know, making dictionaries, are basically staking their future on figuring out a way to adapt to the new digital world.
1: All right. So a dictionary going into the future, if I understand you correctly, is not going to be the book, the physical book that we go to a store and buy and take home and consult as necessary. It's uh, as ambient as the content of a dictionary may be thanks to the internet. It still has to be a building somewhere filled with specialists doing the curatorial work upon the English language in order to do what exactly?
4: Well, that's, even that is under debate. There are, there are sites like WordNIC, which is run by a lexicographer named Aaron McKean, who used to work at the Oxford Dictionaries and is very mainstream, schooled in lexicography. And her belief and the belief of many other people was that a dictionary doesn't have to be this sort of rigid, formal place um, with words that are determined by some august group of lexicographers maybe not even August, just a bunch of people who get to call themselves lexicographers and say what words get to go in a dictionary. Um, You think about... Urban Dictionary, not a great example, but you think about Urban Dictionary or Wiktionary or Wordnik, and these are crowdsourced, and and there is a a huge potential, and it's already happening that that the public can help determine what a word is, when a word is a word, and how a word is defined and used. I mean, it's always been the case, going back to the first Oxford English Dictionary. uh, James Murray, the first editor, put out a call to the public to help him create this dictionary and he all the the citations the the little slips of papers with references to words in use in the real world for the oed those were contributed almost you know, I mean, to a great great extent by people mailing in pieces of paper to james murray the professor and the madman the book by simon winchester the madman was some guy sending in thousands of of examples of usage of words. So in a way, lexicography has always been crowdsourced. Um, But now the Internet has made it so much easier to crowdsource it. So Merriam and other dictionary companies, Oxford, um, American Heritage, there are still a few out there. They have to find, you know, what is the sweet spot between, you know, the sort of formalistic dictionary definition between the pages and the sort of chaos of the Internet. I mean, one thing, it it strikes me that there's two big changes here,
0: right? One is the decision uh, to take the Merriam-Webster unabridged digital and to not have the constraints of a physical book. And that shift, that shift from finite to infinite space, which is one that we've seen paralleled in journalism Mm -hmm. as we've moved digitally, allows a ton more freedom, right? Like it used to mean something to get in a word in the dictionary because they could only fit so many words in the dictionary. And so a word, they had to compare the relative values Of words, the relative widespreadness of words, and a word had to gain a certain amount of cultural currency and prevalence to be worthy of inclusion. Right?
4: Absolutely, and that's how that's how Merriam-Webster operated and still operates. Um, They collect citations, examples of usage of words. They used to be crammed into these unbelievable, these amazing filing cabinets at Merriam's headquarters in Springfield, Massachusetts. They have sixteen million slips of paper in these cabinets. They stopped printing them out in like two thousand nine. Um, and now it's all electronic. It often took like a decade or more for a word to sort of reach this threshold, this subjective threshold, whereby the editors would say, Yes, we give it our approval. It is now worthy of entry into the Unabridged Dictionary or into a, a, a smaller dictionary like Merriam's Collegiate Dictionary. And absent that constraint, yeah, that's what makes this such a compelling. Uh, question for lexicography. You don't have these constraints anymore, so why are we bothering with the pretense of, does this word rise to a level that we deem it worthy of inclusion in our list? Maybe we should just put it on the list the way Wordnik and other places on the internet do, and say, hey, some people came up with this word, here's what it means, here's a couple of examples of its usage. Merriam's utility is saying, no, 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 here are multiple examples of usage and usage that indicate that this word deserves to be acknowledged as something that has permanence, that will be with us.
0: Right. Two examples you cite in your piece are the word upcycle and the word upfake, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so upcycle is uh, primarily a noun usage talking about an upward trend in Primarily business contexts. I'm not being as precise as the many you, you beautifully carry the reader through a couple of the different iterations of this definition. A fake is one that has many, many fewer examples and refers to someone basically faking a, a, a shot, a, a, a shot in basketball. And maybe there's a case that both were, you know, if they've done the work to record that both words exist. One is much more prevalent. One is sort of a, a very rare coinage having to do with a basketball move that's more often referred to in other ways you know, if they've done that work to think that through, maybe they should just include both words, but add the context that upfake had a brief blip of appearing in a very scattered way that right. never really caught on. That's or, interesting or to it's know. it's
4: catching on, and at some point, it may gain more common currency in basketball writing. And this is the, the, this is the main issue that Merriam-Webster is tackling now. And we haven't even mentioned that. What Merriam-Webster is doing with its unabridged dictionary is revising the third edition of its Merriam-Webster's... New International Dictionary. It was the last great unabridged dictionary that the company published in 1961. And upon its publication, it was the subject of tremendous public controversy because it was perceived as permissive and descriptive of the language rather than prescriptive. People were were accustomed to having the dictionary tell you whether usage was right or wrong. The third took a much more permissive approach toward, um, toward language and words like Ain't and Irregardless, in other words, that sort of became cause celeb in the 1960s. Um, and it really was this gigantic cultural issue. The New York Times like wrote like a dozen editorials and op-eds about how bad this dictionary was. Um, the, Dwight MacDonald wrote this mammoth piece in The New Yorker. Um, railing against Merriam-Webster for publishing this lax, permissive, sloppy dictionary. And it really wasn't any of those things. It was just different. It took a different approach to language. So now Merriam is, has finally decided after 50 years that they need to, to update this. And they decided to not print a new edition, a fourth edition of it, and to do this entirely online. And so the question, as you point out, is, well, if Upcycle has gained enough currency and we found enough citations in newspapers and magazines and you know, trade publications and business journals or whatever – um, to, to merit its inclusion as a word. And Upfake, yeah, it doesn't have as many, but hey, Bill Simmons used it in a column once, and the New York Times used it in a headline once, and a few sports writers have used it. So maybe we should just cite that and include it. So this is this real tug-of-war, because there's also a finite amount of time for lexicographers. I mean, they've got, like, there were 467,000 entries in Webster's third unabridged, and they want to revise all of these. And this this creates a sort of a new sort of way of thinking about how a dictionary functions as well. Is it something that is finite, A to Z, and then you print it? Or is it now just this rolling change in language that we need to chronicle on a daily basis? Right. And it, and it
0: is fundamentally a publishing story. I mean, these questions have been applied to news media and journalism more generally over the last two decades, right? Sure. Oh, you can just get the news in your pocket. You don't need to buy a physical item, newspaper or dictionary anymore. You can just tap it into your phone and search, search, search. But then also the fundamental economics of the industry remain, which is, yeah, you can search anything you want on your phone, but there needs to be an economic model to support there being stuff worth looking at at the other end of those search queries. Otherwise, the utility of tapping into a search box falls away. You know, I think that it's so useful to have lexicographers putting these words in context and offering the sense of meaning. I mean, it's always fun to look up Urban Dictionary. And I understand that Wordnik and Urban Dictionary are two wildly different internet projects, but in terms of the kind of lexicographical authority that they mm-hmm. have and wield. But there is, yeah, I can type a word into Google's Engram viewer and see how it's spiked up and down over time. But that's not the same as an informed expert putting it into context for me. And that is something that that I value, and I'm excited that this company feels there is a digital future for itself. I mean, it seems, in your piece, as though the economics remain somewhat uncertain. but um
4: They do, but less uncertain than I think that Merriam-Webster thought a decade or a decade and a half ago when they were still operating under the economic model of, we got to keep printing. I mean, not that they were ever going to do a fourth. I mean, the last time that they seriously considered overhauling and putting this, you know, 2,800-page dictionary into, you know, between leather covers. I mean, really, that idea died in the early to mid-1990s. And for the company, you know, the the growth in advertising on its they do have a free website. The dictionary, the the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary is what you would normally see online and go to. The unabridged is a subscription-only website, and that model, you know, is up for debate, whether that's going to be the way to to handle this. Um, And they are generating enough ad revenue um, and enough sales from their backlist because people are going to still buy dictionaries. You know, People are still going to buy paperbacks and learner's dictionaries and Spanish, you know, English dictionaries. I mean, there's all kinds of, of potential for physical products that's not gone away yet. But as John Morse, the president of Merriam-Webster, told me, we're a digital company now. We generate more revenue from digital products and subscriptions um, than we do from Print sales. So their mindset has to be going forward, and this I think is where they haven't tapped into the potential yet. Is how do we utilize the incredibly cool things that we can do? Whether it's Google's ngram viewer, um, whether it's analyzing corpuses more deeply to find words that we're missing, um, to gauge um, utility and usage. In, in print media and spoken media, um, how do we do that better and present that to the reader? So we're giving them more than just dictionary definition, plus some examples of its use in quotations, plus maybe an etymological note and a note on usage. Those things are considered innovative. Now, the ability to just write long, cool sort of historical um appreciations of words which merriam is doing um, i cite a couple in the story bippy as in you bet your sweet bippy from the 1970 show rowan and martin's laughing um, to asshat which is obviously pretty common parlance now um, but so, so the ability to create uh, these cool little biographies of words is one thing but then how can they take it to the next step how can they monetize and make it even cooler to look up words
2: Stefan, there were a couple of things that struck me in your, your article, which is just so well reported and gives such a great on-site sense of what it's like inside that old schoolhouse building in Springfield, Massachusetts. One was just the sheer size of the English language lexicon. And I think you have a statistic in there that um, supposedly 52 of the, percent of the English word hoard of over a million words is what's called lexical dark matter that's never been defined or explained anywhere. Could you talk about how that was arrived at and, and what that, that means for lexicography?
4: Sure. Um, There was a a project done that a lot of people have heard of called Culturomics, and it was it's a group of researchers at Harvard and MIT, and it's ongoing. Um, They're they're still doing this, and they and this was back in 2010. They looked at Google's database, which at that point included 5.2 million digitized books and a total of like 360 billion distinct words in English or distinct letter strings anyway, in English. Um, They estimated that as of 2000, there were like more than a million unique words. And then they compared it to Merriam-Webster's unabridged dictionary and to the American Heritage Dictionary, which is also a big fat unabridged dictionary. And that's where they came up with this 52% figure that these are words that were missing. And some of those are going to be like words that are used once. Some are probably typos. Um, but a lot of them are going to be usages that, you know, have, have, that gain some currency, but never have risen to the threshold. I mean, there's the threshold that a lexicographer would say, hey, this is worthy of inclusion. And that might just be because lexicography, even in the digital age, is a is a fairly hit or miss process. I mean, the way that Merriam-Webster's definers have defined words and found them for you know, 200 years since Noah Webster is to see them in print. Take a snapshot of that usage, and then make this determination over time as they collected more evidence that it belonged. But you're going to miss a lot. So there were, you know, it's a lot less hit or miss than it was because you can go to Nexus or to Google Books and type in a letter string and look for it. But what the the culturomics research shows is that yeah, there's more to English than we're aware. Um, the the breadth is so much greater than any dictionary can possibly handle. So these resources can allow lexicographers to do a better job of finding these sort of mysterious words or these hidden words. Um, And I think that's one area where, you know, where lexicography is going to go, is how do we utilize these kinds of databases and the kinds of Analytical tools that exist and we're getting used to in other realms like sports, um, and to make, um, you know, to, to create better word portraits for the dictionary.
2: Well, that kind of leads me to my second question, which was just uh, to whatever extent Google Ngrams and all of these scanned books and, and scanned archives have changed um, lexicography and the art of defining, there still is a lot of print printed matter circulating at the Merriam-Webster office, it sounds like, right? There are shelves full of books and magazines and newspapers that the definers just sit around and read looking for, for new new words or new usages of totally.
4: words. Totally. And it's, it's actually part of their daily jobs. They're instructed to spend an hour or two a day. It's called reading and marketing. And they read whatever it is. It can be, you know, a catalog. It can be, you know, the L.L. Bean catalog. It can be a cereal box. It can be Slate. It can be newspapers, magazines, novels, anything. And when, when a, an editor sees an interesting usage of a word, and it's not just new words. When I was sort of skimming through the stacks of magazines and, and other printed matter there, I was finding things that I would look at and go, that's like a normal word. Like, that's in the dictionary. And why do we need to mark that? And a lot of it is searching for new senses of words, new usages, of word, or just a really good quote uh, to illustrate how a word is used. One, one definer, Emily Brewster, who I write about in the piece, and I didn't include this in, in the piece, but she found a new sense of the word A, <laughs> which is sort of this magical moment for a lexicographer. Like, wow, I discovered something no one had had seen before that it was like the Higgs the Higgs (laughs) boson right wait what was the sense can you explain it Uh, I can't explain I can't remember now I'd have to look through my notes um, it (laughs) was was... it was it was was, was sort of like you you look at and you go huh okay I get it and a new sense meaning no one had written it down it wasn't that we don't use it or someone hadn't you know used it in print it's that no one had realized it and recorded it as a sense in a dictionary definition
0: can I ask you guys a totally uh, like romantic nostalgia question? Do you guys still look up things in the print in print reference books and print dictionaries and other things, or have you shifted to digital?
2: I don't. I don't have a good enough online digital source now. I kind of want to subscribe to this Merriam-Webster online unabridged because it's what thirty dollars a year or something. Mm-hmm. It seems worth it because you get etymologies and all that stuff, right, Stefan?
4: It's full yeah, on. You do, and you'll get more, but it's it's a slow process. You know, they've they've updated about ten thousand entries so far, and there's. Now, there are like I said, four hundred and sixty seven from nineteen from from the last printing of this, which was in two thousand and two, um, the last update to the third um, so, so so gradually but it 's a very hit or miss process even there now the, the subscription is great because you will stumble across you know, these wonderful new words and new definitions, but at the same time you get, if you, you know, if you happen on like a word like some of the words I used in the story, these sort of famous definitions like oxygen and door, which are, and hotel, which are just absurd because they're long and they include all this detail, but it, it reflects the way we were thinking in you know, 1961 about how words should be described. And there's this, this, this thoroughness and this authoritativeness to it that is really compellingly weird from a modern perspective, but also illustrative of how valuable the idea of, of explaining language is.
2: If I could answer the first part of Julia's question, I actually just gave my daughter a children's dictionary for Christmas and was showing her how to look up words in the dictionary and, you know, find things in alphabetical order. And when I really want to understand a word, the... the, the Etymology and the history of it, and the first usage and all that. I will actually haul out the old two-volume OED and magnifying glass and read it, but that probably happens once every
1: six months or so.
4: Or you could pay two hundred ninety-five dollars a year and get the OED.
2: Yeah, I I periodically (laughs) dream of doing that, and then I look at the price and I cancel the plan.
1: Wow, three hundred a year? No, I'm totally, I'm totally online. I just do a Google search and and move on. But um, Stefan, there were many incredible uh, parts to your article but i loved when uh perot says when we get to z we'll presumably continue right on to a again so they're caught in an infinite uh lexicographical loop but uh congratulations on the piece and thanks so much for coming on the show it's
4: my pleasure thank you guys all right the piece is called
1: the definition of a dictionary it's on, uh, up on slate now check it out and tell us what you think of it all right well now is the moment in our show where we endorse dana what do you have
2: All right. I'm going to endorse something that it's it's very possible that everyone who listens to our podcast already has heard this because it's a very popular podcast. But I'm one of those people who listens to Mark Maron only when he has a guest I care about. Sometimes when he has a comedy dude, it can just get too too much double comedy dude for me. But he did the most wonderful interview with Paul Thomas Anderson last week, who was a great get for him. In one week, he got Richard Linklater and, and Paul Thomas Anderson to appear on his podcast. And I haven't heard the Linklater one yet, but the Paul Thomas Anderson interview is just 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 a cherry on top of the, the work of, of Maren's interviewing. It's wonderful. They get so comfortable together. They talk their way through all of Anderson's movies. Um, you know, Maren is completely upfront about his reservations about certain movies, and Anderson finds all that really interesting, and they laugh a lot together. There's this really wonderful moment where they've got such a good dynamic going that Maren's going to go get a glass of water for Paul Thomas Anderson, and, and Anderson says, wait, stay with me, don't go. <laughs> It's just this very like two guys in a dorm room in, in the best sense, and I just I learned a lot about Anderson's life and his filmmaking process. So I recommend the uh, the Mark Maron WTF interview with Paul Thomas Anderson.
1: All right, uh, and uh, Julia, what do you have?
0: Actually, Steve, before I endorse. I just want to note that we have a correction from last week in our wide ranging slash skeptical appreciation slash dismissal of Lee Daniels' new television show Empire, which has gotten boffo ratings, by the way, and seems like it's here to stay. We mentioned some of Lee Daniels' past work, including Precious and The Butler, and we also credited him with Hustle & Flow, a film that starred Taraji P. Henson and Terrence Howard, but was not directed by Lee Daniels. We had that wrong. The director was Craig Brewer. It was one of those things where my spidey sense tingled when we said it, and we should have looked it up. So anyway, apologies to everyone. Including Craig Brewer, Lee Daniels, and the full cast of Hustle and Flow, and all you listeners that that uh, we had we got that one wrong. All right, my endorsement is Serious Eats, which is a website uh, that covers food generally, but the food scene in New York very extensively, and is run by like a delightful obsessive named Ed Levine, um, who has recently published an opus about the New York City diner and the institution of the American diner. Generally, and he spent like three months eating almost entirely in diners, and it's just great. It's like just great to follow him uh, down the the diner path and hear the those big fat round cornered plates clanking in your brain. So um, yes, Ed Levine on diners at Serious Eats. Actually, Steve, before you endorse, we have Joe in the studio to endorse. It is Joe Livingston's last day, our beloved intern. She's going to leave us to do a much more interesting things and f- complete her dissertation, which we're going to grill her about a little bit in our Slate Plus segment. Um, but, Joe, endorse.
5: I am going to endorse an unseasonal song that I've been listening to a lot lately. I'm going to endorse the Jonathan Richmond song, That Summer Feeling. I don't know why, but I've just been listening to it walking around in the snow thinking about summer, thinking about seasons and uh, seasonal music. And I have a few reasons for it. Um, It's about nostalgia. It's about thinking about your childhood and kind of the pain of remembering happy things, but also how you end up feeling nostalgic for things you didn't even like the first time around, like first grade, which Jonathan Richmond didn't even like, but now he remembers it so fondly. And I don't know, I feel like on my last day on the Gab Fest, I feel my memories of the studio around me already kind of like fading into my happy nostalgia right? um, <laughs> it evokes something about that
2: it's um, like the off-season summer strut the winter strut
5: because yeah. it's a kind of lugubrious um summer kind of uh, i don't know it's not strutty at all it's like lying face down on the grass like uh, also works in the winter time <laughs> very good
1: <laughs> all right steve uh, i'm gonna endorse two completely uh, in the spirit of a, a, a pluralistic mind um I'm going to endorse two seemingly totally contrary things. The first is, um, having gone down the serial rabbit hole, uh, I started reading Reddit, and I kind of love Reddit. And I, I love the idea.
0: <laughs> Steven, if of, you become a Redditor, I don't know, all my worlds will collapse. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah well, I suppose. <laughs> Je suis clearly, Reddit. <gasps> uh, yeah, clearly my, my, my internal world is collapsing. But anyway, so um, the Reddit is, uh, I I kind of love the idea of, crowdsourced fact checking, uh, and disputation. And, um, I think we got to be alive to new technologies. Look, and look, pamphleteering was once a major literary form in a way, and it disappeared and it's returned with the internet. I think we have to be open to how this so-called disruption can produce new modes of knowing. And those new modes may be most appropriate to our new modes of living. On the other hand, I love the idea of the master thinker who's a total grump and who sees decline uh, everywhere. And though I'm not really a fan of this person. I did enjoy reading Among the Disrupted by Leon Wieseltier uh, in the New York Times, who seems to have found uh, new life as or is about to find new life uh, after the demise of the New Republic as a contributor to The Atlantic. And um, it's just classic uh, Leon. It's long, it's uh, under-edited, it's grumpy, it's uh, high-handed and completely ridiculous. Uh, But nonetheless, um, given the the fatuousness with which uh, Silicon Valley culture is taking over all of culture, kind of necessary and heroic. Uh, Therefore, I uh, endorse improbably both uh, Reddit and Leon Wieseltier. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. (laughs) Love it. Uh, Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia.
0: Thank you.
1: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Josephine Livingston and Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. That feeling... That summer feeling, that
0: summer feeling. When there's things to do, not because you gotta When you run for love, not because you oughta When you trust your friends with no reason, not a The joy I've made shall not be tamed And that summer feeling
1: is gonna haunt you one day in your life.